Welcome to Blanket Fort Radio Theater, a storytelling initiative from SIU Press in collaboration with the SIU Creative Writing Program and WSIU. In our last episode, Charlie Berger became known for extreme acts of kindness, such as lending his car to a friend in need and providing groceries to the homes of the poor. At the same time, he was also prone to less than admirable behavior, from bootlegging to violently beating those who crossed him. He had a complicated reputation, to say the least. Night of Another Sort Prohibition Days and Charlie Berger by Gary Deneal Chapter 6 Egan Rats and Hogan's Jelly Rolls That raid in June of 1923 may well have closed Berger's main establishment in the West End, but it is unlikely that his business interests in Harrisburg and Saline County were terminated quite so neatly. Human nature being the same in Harrisburg as in Singapore, no doubt the houses continued to accommodate the unloved, and the gaming tables continued to draw at least a devoted clientele. It should also be remembered that Berger's financial interests extended beyond those joints associated with him personally. The kingpin of the Saline County underworld, he received weekly payoffs from gamblers such as Harrisburg's Charlie Gaskins and Hickory Boatwright. Together, they paid $100 a week for the privilege of running their crap games. Another man paid $200. The town's sporting houses, such as the Blue Moon on the East End, paid an average of from $15 to $25 weekly, and one house in the southeast part of the county shelled out $300. The man who did the collecting, my informant, says he usually kept about a third of the take, but adds that since no books were kept, he never tried to be exact. In fact, sometimes he kept it all. Concerned that his free and easy way with the profits might get him killed, he would occasionally ask around to see if Berger was checking on him, and he was much gratified to learn that he was not. Whatever his standing in Harrisburg, it is true that in the latter part of 1923, Berger was more and more visible at a resort between Marion and Johnston City, apparently known as Halfway. His partners in that operation were Ralph Hill, Charles Chink Schaefer, and Nathan Riddle. Of the three, Schaefer received the most attention, being a well-known gambler and a snappy dresser. A close friend of Judge D.T. Hartwell, Schaefer was thought to be the supplier of Hartwell's dope, probably morphine. Beatrice remembered Halfway as, A big house with a rounded porch. That was Charlie's bootlegging joint. This house was on the west side of the road. On the east side of the road was the establishment he ran with his partners. One of the bartenders was Cecil Knighton. With his near bar in Harrisburg officially closed, thanks to an injunction from the office of state's attorney Charles Thompson, Berger became a familiar figure at the roadhouse and was often seen in the company of Knighton. Business continued as usual. The two men were close. 
One of the few outsiders made welcome in Berger's home, the slender Knighton was more than once heard to remark that he did not want his mother to learn of his activities in Illinois. A neat dresser, thanks mainly to Harrisburg's leading haberdashers, Rathbone and Brown, Knighton was especially proud of his light-colored clothes and was rarely seen in anything else. Beatrice saw him as... Just a young fella from Alabama who wanted to be a gambler, and that's what he was. He was the only one allowed around the place because I guess Charlie figured he was good enough to associate in his home. On the other hand, the young man had a quick temper and was almost never without a pistol. As depicted in various newspapers, his killing bore an uncanny resemblance to that of William Otten in Edgemont 15 years earlier. After an argument between Berger and Knighton at the roadhouse, over a woman according to tradition, Berger went to his place across the road. Knighton followed, vowing he was going, Gonna get that Jew son of a bitch and run him out of Illinois. After Knighton took a shot at him, Berger grabbed a shotgun and blasted his assailant twice, killing him. After someone summoned Marion policeman Tom Boyd, Berger stood over the body of his one-time friend. When Boyd arrived, he surrendered. The date was November 15, 1923. Beatrice remembered that story differently. She and Charlie had just returned from St. Louis. He had bought her a couple of dresses. He had also purchased a large number of boxes from a wholesale house. She didn't know what was in those boxes, but she suspected they contained whiskey bottles. Upon arriving at Halfway, Berger began counting the proceeds of his business. Big Jim Kelly, perhaps the same Jim Kelly with whom he had served time years earlier in the Metropolis Jail, whispered something in his ear. At that point, Berger packed me up and we came home. When they arrived in Harrisburg, he told her, Somebody killed Cecil Knighton. Soon afterward, he drove back alone to Halfway. And I thought Knighton was an awful nice fella, she said. The coroner's jury, meeting in Marion the afternoon of November 16th, exonerated Berger on grounds of self-defense. Officially blameless, yet apparently distraught, according to Harrisburg's Daily Register, he met with friends back in Harrisburg and freely discussed the matter. On a bright note, he spoke of the dance hall and park he planned to build on the west side of the road at Halfway, and even talked of building a lake between Harrisburg and Marion. He probably had in mind the land he owned five miles west of Harrisburg. There is a macabre footnote to the Knighton killing. Rathbone and Brown had ordered some silk shirts for the Natty Alabama man, but before he could pick them up, fate had intervened. While in the store to order some shirts of his own one day, Berger was shown the silk shirts with the letter C monogrammed on the pockets. Delighted, he bought the lot. Knighton was well known in Harrisburg, and his killing caused no little excitement there. Before the talk could fade away, however, another man, himself no stranger to the town, was killed at Halfway, and again Berger was blamed. It was Sunday night, November 18th. Five men had left Mrs. Effie Ashby's roadhouse, which was located north of Johnston City, and had driven south to Halfway. Meanwhile, in Marion, Charlie Berger was dining at the home of his friend and business partner, Charles Chink Schaefer. After supper, they drove to the roadhouse. No sooner had they arrived than the five men appeared. Berger knew four of them, Bailey Martin, Roy Shaw, Ora Thomas, and William F. Whitey Doring. How's it going? 
Doring asked, as he proceeded to shake hands with Berger, whom he had known for years. Despite his show of affability, the St. Louisan had little to be cheerful about. He had recently been sentenced to 30 years in the federal penitentiary at Atlanta, Georgia, for his involvement in a St. Louis mail robbery that had occurred on April 2, 1923, in which more than $2,400,000 in bonds and securities had been stolen. Acting on a tip, federal officers raided Doring's fine home in the exclusive Richmond Heights section of St. Louis and had found most of the hall. $2,139,000 of federal land bank bonds. He claimed that he knew nothing about the bonds, but was arrested along with one Dan Wiseman, formerly of Johnston City. Being much less affluent than his partner, Wiseman could not pay the appeal bond of $75,000 and began serving his term soon after the two men were found guilty on October 20th in federal court. On the other hand, Doring promptly filled his bond, set at $90,000, and he then moved to the vicinity of Marion, where his personable and liberal ways made him many friends. That night, according to Berger, Schaefer began to rib Doring. Gee, you're looking bad. Bet you've lost 30 pounds since you've been in court. Whitey only grinned. Berger finally told the fellows to let up on him. About 15 minutes later, Whitey called Berger outside. At this point, versions of what followed vary, but this much can be determined. In an exchange of shots, Doring and Berger were wounded. Doring died in the Heron Hospital. Berger's deposition was taken at the same hospital. He stated that Whitey had asked him a question that he had refused to answer. In the deposition, Berger stated, When I said I didn't know the answer, he cursed and whipped out his automatic. Before I could run, he'd shot me and I fell forward grabbing him. Berger would not say at the time just what the question was, but it was assumed that Doring wanted to know the time of the payroll distribution at the Harco mine near Harrisburg. Later, Berger denied Doring had asked any question at all. During the ensuing struggle, three of the men who had accompanied Doring ran outside. Berger said he knew Shaw and Martin, but the third man remained a mystery. Meanwhile, the shooting became general. But through it all, Berger claimed to hear someone say, Kill Berger. Make a good job of it. The bullet that was sent to do just that had struck Doring instead, Berger said, sending both wounded men to the porch. Unconscious, Berger at this point could relate only what he heard later, that the three lifted Doring into his car and drove him to Heron, leaving the other two men to fend for themselves. In other words, to exit by the back door and flee across the fields. Finally, only Berger was left lying on the porch, with a bullet lodged just below his heart. As he told a reporter, After I'd laid there a while, my strength came back, and I got to my feet. Everything was quiet, and there was not a soul in sight, so I started out to Mary and crossing the fields on the way. I got there about half an hour later and went to the sheriff's house. After I woke him up, he called the ambulance, and they took me to Heron. At 2 o'clock Monday morning, November 19th, word of the shooting reached Harrisburg, according to the Daily Register. A call was placed to the Canary Taxi Company, requesting that someone there notify Beatrice and drive her to the Heron Hospital, where her husband lay gravely, possibly mortally wounded. A short time later, Beatrice and Minnie got into the taxi and started out. 
The driver of the car, Glenn McCoy, reported later to the paper that Berger was sitting up in bed talking to his wife and anyone else who would listen. He told how the men, supposedly his friends, had come to the roadhouse and how that visit had resulted in a quarrel and the fatal shooting of Doring. McCoy said the wounded man insisted he would have gladly loaned them any amount of money had they only asked. The incoming calls from all over the county requesting more information about the shooting prompted the Daily Register to run a long article taken from the St. Louis Post-Dispatch, detailing Doring's spectacular criminal career. On November 21st, the newspaper reported receiving information that carloads of Egan Rats and Hogan's Jelly Rolls, two of the most dangerous gunmen gangs in the country, and deadly enemies, were converging on Heron, presumably drawn by the presence there of the dangerously wounded Charlie Berger. Perhaps one faction came to praise, and the other to bury. If the St. Louis gunmen did really arrive in Heron, they blended so well with the local citizenry that their presence was hardly noticed. Some time after the death of Doring, Berger came to the office of Marion attorney Arlie O. Boswell to ask a favor of the young man. He said that he had received an invitation over the telephone from one of the Egan Rats, requesting that he come to St. Louis for a showdown. Bound by his own peculiar code of honor, the gangster felt compelled to go, but he wondered if, in the meantime, Boswell would keep his diamond ring in the office safe. In the event of death as a result of the shootout, the ring was to be turned over to Mrs. Berger, otherwise he would pick it up upon his return. Boswell thanked his visitor for placing so much confidence in him, and then the young attorney declined the offer. He believed that once the ring was in his possession, there it would stay, thus obligating him to Berger. As for the fight, he doubted that it ever took place. Let's backtrack for a moment to the Heron Hospital, when Berger was still a patient there. When Beatrice came in the door, she saw a young woman leave the room. She was curious. When I went in to see Charlie, I said, did you have any visitors? The man in bandages said no at first, but upon further questioning, snapped back. Don't worry about that. You're my wife. You're the only woman I want. Beatrice later learned that the woman at the hospital was the one he had been seeing for some time. All along, of course, she suspected that there were others to account for the nights Charlie spent away from home, but until that moment, she had considered herself the kingpin. Now, bitterly, she knew she was the wife, the figurehead. The woman he needed as a mother to Minnie and Charlene. He always had those other women, she said. As for poor Whitey, whom she had all but forgotten in the wake of this emotional crisis, Beatrice might have shed some light upon his relationship with her husband, had anyone bothered to ask. Certainly, Doring was no stranger to the establishment on West Poplar, or to the nearby garage, which in a sense was Berger's headquarters. Often, she recalled, he even brought stolen furs and diamonds there to be sold in Harrisburg. But she did not testify. Others who did, including some of the men who accompanied Doring to the halfway that night, convinced the coroner's jury that the victim had died at the hands of parties unknown. Slow to recover from his wound, one which he was said to suffer from for the rest of his life, Berger was, as ever, busy with projects. And as always, trouble was near at hand. On June 28, 1923, he bought from McKinley Graves 40 acres of land east of Crab Orchard in Williamson County. 
paying $1,650 for it. Some time later, he and his wife inspected the place. She recalled that they talked about it when they got home. He was planning what he called the barbecue stand, and we were sitting in the front room. He said, Let's think of some names. I said, Well, let's call it being there's so many trees, Shady Rest. He said, Well, I'll think about it. Just like that. It never did mature while I was with him. What she did remember, however, was an old tumble-down shanty across the highway where he had women. It was more of a cow shed because there was no floor. He had rugs instead. The one time she was there is memorable, thanks to the woman she had glimpsed leaving Charlie's hospital room at Heron. One day, that thoughtful soul told her that Berger wanted to see her out the shack. Beatrice thought the request was odd, especially since Charlie tried so hard to keep his family and his business life in separate compartments. But she finally decided that something was wrong and headed to the shack in the taxicab her rival had hired. When I got there, she said with the slightest bit of a smile, I saw these women and men drinking and what have you, and I remembered from the time before and thought to myself, you'd better not go near there. She told the cab driver to take her back to Harrisburg. The only part Berger played in the affair was to beat the daylights out of the woman who set Beatrice up. Next time, Mr. Shelton, your pistol is a little bit bigger than mine. And he said, Yours will shoot just as many times and probably just as hard. Thank you all for listening to Blanket Fort Radio Theater. Please follow us on Facebook and visit BlanketFortRadioTheater.com to learn more about the project. Build your own Blanket Fort and tell a story.